It's the baptism is the best part of the service. Don't agree. That says a lot about the sermon sometimes. First Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to be there. I, I too want to join the chorus in saying happy Mother's Day. There's some that want to indoctrinate us and change it all to say happy birthing person's day. Uh, they teach at universities, but let's fight the power. Let's fight the system. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, here's my mom, a picture of her when she was in her teens. What a beautiful lady there, huh? You see me in her at all, anybody? A little bit? Where? Eyes? Nose? Yep. Okay. Okay, no, enough commentary from the congregation. We, be, we better move forward. My mom was born in the 40s in Red Bay, Alabama. She's still working. She's amazing. She's vibrant. I've got some of uh, my weaker traits from her, but a lot of my strong points. And my kids, as they grow older, uh, look at me sometimes and laugh and say, oh, you're just like grandma. And I get a lot from her, but I love her. She's going to retire next year, and uh, she's looking to apply to be a house mom at a fraternity at Mississippi State. Wouldn't that be great? She would, listen, Connie, she would be great at it, I'm telling you. That'd be great for her in her uh, retirement. Hey, let's kick it back. We're in Corinth, and we're learning a lot about first century the first century Mediterranean world, we're learning about this important city. You remember, we've uh, taught this uh, several weeks running that there were really important cities like Rome and Jerusalem, but also cities like Ephesus and Antioch uh, and Athens were really important and Corinth. Take a look at this map. I want you to just get a relationship here between, look at Ephesus. There's other cities. I just mentioned several of them. There's other cities here, but uh, Ephesus and Corinth. Take a look at those two cities. You see Paul and Silas and Timothy and some other leaders of a household named Chloe and her household. Uh, she was a vibrant mom back in the day, uh, Chloe was. And they started this church in Corinth. And then Paul, after 18 months, a year and a half there, he moved on to other places. And he was in Ephesus uh, when he wrote this letter. His second letter to the, the church at Corinth is, uh, is a more vulnerable one. But this is more instructive. This, these are warnings. These are, he's addressing the church about what divides us. And so we've been looking at some of those things. And we're here in uh, chapter 8 now. Now, let's go to the second map. And you'll see Corinth and Athens. Now, we, what we did is we isolated. So you follow me? So Ephesus is further to the right on this map. But Corinth and Athens, I think the distance there is somewhere between, I think it's around 45 miles. And Athens was the home, you know, uh, in Greek Roman history, you know, it was the, the home of, of thinkers, vibrant thinkers like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. We looked a few weeks ago in chapter six about uh, the Plutonic dualism and how it affected. So Corinth was, was affected by the city of Athens and the larger Greek world. But Corinth, uh, historians tell us, really surpassed Athens in influence. So my point today is Corinth's a really, really important city. And if you stroll through Corinth back then, you would see, uh, you would see government buildings. You would see temples to the Greek and Roman gods. Uh, ten temples uh, still remain to this day, the, the remnants or the ruins of 10 temples to Greek and Roman gods remain to this day. Uh, you would also see the marketplace, uh, also called then the Agora. And it was a place of buying and selling, of bartering. There were coins. There were also just deals, handshakes, and you know people that knew mama and them would trade something off. But the, the market was, was located near uh, the temples. And so a part of worship then in this polytheistic, uh, religiously plural environment uh, remember, Christianity was brand new. And so in uh, the, this marketplace, there's the marketplace, and then there's the marketplace of ideas. And that was reflected at all these uh, temples. And there would be worship. There would be um, idol worship in the temples. And that included animal sacrifices. And back in Corinth at that time, they would take 
uh, remains. They would take meat offered to the idols in the animal sacrifices. They would take it uh, to the marketplace. It would be bought and sold in the market. And in all likelihood, if you were a dinner guest, if somebody in first century Corinth, it's a strong likelihood that you would be eating meat that was offered to idols. Now, in preparing for today, as we do a long, thorough walk through this great letter, 1 Corinthians, I thought, yeah, it's Mother's Day. Maybe we'll forget the part about offering food uh, to idols, uh, dietary restrictions and stuff like this. But, man, this is important because this is not just, it's not just dietary regulations and restrictions. It's not just uh, arguing over food offered to idols. This is about, listen to me, this is about how we treat others who we disagree with. This is about what, how do we, if, if you think this and I think this, and we're skirmishing, ultimately what role does love play? As followers of Jesus, what part does love play? What type of people should we be when we disagree? Now, we have dietary regulations in our day, don't we? We have some vegetarians among us. We may have some vegans. We, maybe you're dairy-free or gluten-free. Uh, you let us know as brothers and sisters in Christ. You let us know at communion, those of you who are gluten-free. You, anybody on the Whole30 diet? You ever done the Whole30 diet? You ever, gone out, you ever gone out with someone to a restaurant who's on the Whole30 diet? And watch them engage with the server. It's questions like, uh, what type of oil do you cook this in? Uh, we, can, uh, we can only have food that's cooked in avocado oil or pine cone oil or something. Hey, the chicken, the chicken that I might order, was it, did it ever come in contact with a lilac bush? Or did it ever smell an acorn? And you're just there rolling your eyes, you know, glad that they're losing weight and they're more health conscious. But you just want your juicy steak, right? So we know about dietary regulations. Well, they had dietary regulations. So you see, these believers in Jesus... Here's what they were wondering. If you brought a steak home, remember, very religious society. So if you brought a steak home and cooked it up, or, or if you, let's say this, if you were at a dinner party and they were cooking up a steak, it could be the meat from an idol worship. So is the steak legit? And you can see, because it's 2023 and we argue over all kind of stuff, right, in our day. Well, they argued over this and they wondered about, is the steak legit? Should I, should I be eating this. And so into this, Paul writes the eighth chapter. We've talked about marriage and sexuality and singleness and such in the previous chapters. And we come to this part that I just don't want to skip over today because it's not about this. It's about how we treat each other when we disagree. So I'm going to, I want to break this up, 1 Corinthians 8, into three parts. And the first part, you'll see it on the screen, it's being right. And I want to challenge you because some of y'all are right a lot. And we know it. So we want to speak to you. And honestly, Susan will be here at the 11 o'clock and she'll make a noise when I say that part. And I'll feel, the, I'll feel her eyes staring at me. So three parts. The first part is being right. So look at how Paul starts this in the eighth chapter. We're going to go 8-1-A. And here's what he says. Now about food sac- sacrifice to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. So when you get people together, it, it's, it's, it's the vibe of a room, but everybody knows something when people get together. It doesn't matter what, if it's a large assembly like this, or if it's a small group, or it's your family later for lunch, everybody knows something. Everybody's got opinions. 
And depending on what type of family you live in, uh, people share their opinions, don't they? So you know something and I know something. We get together, I know some stuff and you know some stuff. Some people really speak about what they know. Other people roll their eyes when someone's speaking about what they know. But we all know stuff. Paul is, in some ways, I feel a tinge of sarcasm, even though he's dropping knowledge about our knowledge. Also feel some sarcasm. He's saying, hey, we all have opinions. We all have convictions. We all have some knowledge about things. But what happens when people who know things are in a room? What happens when we begin to share uh, what we know? Here's a great example in Acts 19. I love this verse in verse 32. It's sort of tucked away in there. It says inside, that means the assembly there in Ephesus. The people were all shouting. Apparently they knew stuff. If you know something, you shout. You're like, ah, oh, you need to hear me. Let me tell you what I know. And some, uh, some one thing and some another. Opposing viewpoints, crossfire. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even what? know why they were there. They knew some stuff, but then they, got, they, they, they were sharing their knowledge and these people were sharing their knowledge and then they didn't know why they were there. Ever happened to you? Look, that's why we leave churches, right? This, we check out with this kind of stuff when people are just shouting about what they know and they come in. You ever been part of a split? You ever been part of a fight? It's why we have 1 Corinthians. And he's writing and saying, and th- th- we see this bad example in Acts. Now we see great leadership subsequent, but we see this example. You know something and I know something. And we got to be careful. And here's what I love about Paul. I to, I've told y'all he's brilliant. Here's what he does in 1 Corinthians 8. He says this, before we talk about who's right, I want to talk about how we're right. Before we talk about who's right, because, you know, we do need to talk about that. So if anybody's a sort of uh, leans toward the soft thing and says, ah, truth doesn't matter. Love, 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 love. Truth doesn't matter. Look, look at me. Love is truth. And to love someone well, you need to love the truth. And the truth is inescapable. And we must all give account of ourselves to God. Honestly, pastors are failing America today by not preaching that enough. The the greatest thought your mind can entertain, Daniel Webster said, is your accountability to God. Listen to me. Truth matters. And if if, if you're disregarding the truth entirely, uh, that's really not love. It may be sweet and saccharine and syrupy, but it's really not love. So he writes and says, a lot of people know things. But before we talk about who's right... Let's talk about how to be right. And here in the B part of verse 1, he tells how we get, get it wrong by being right. Knowledge puffs, puffs up, but love builds up. Honestly, one of my favorite verses in the scripture. Just one of these truths that's a clarion call for me in life and in love and in leadership. Knowledge puffs up. Picture the Michelin man. But love builds up. The enemy comes to seek, he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And by the way, he is, 1 Peter 5, living and active. Back then and in our day-to-day. And he's seeking, to, he's seeking to, see, to, to kill, steal, and destroy. And one of his methods is to divide people. And to, to, for us to tear each other down. Before, Paul says, before we tell you who's right, and he's about to, I want to tell you how to be right. And there is a way that in being right where you can tear people down. And here's what I... What's amazing, Dallas Willard, y'all know, is one of my favorite writers. He writes about this very thing in the renovation of the heart. He talks about how Jesus, of course, son of God, uh, was never wrong. He was always right, but he never hurt someone in his rightness. And I look today, and people that uh, they adorn stages and platforms in the church, we have to be careful. Leaders have to be careful because there's a lot of people who have good doctrine but are hurting people. And so we need to be really, really careful here. And he writes and says, listen, love builds up, but knowledge 
puffs up. So we need to be called to not tear each other down. Do you know that in your rightness, in your good sound theology, in your correct doctrine, that you can tear somebody down? Do you know that you can tear down their very faith? You can tear down their conscience. You can tear down their self-image. You can tear down their worth as a human being. You can tear them down with the way that you're right. And Paul is saying, hey, you with superior knowledge. Hey, those who are shouting the loudest, those who have the megaphone, those who are swaying and influencing people, be very careful that you don't hurt people with your rightness. And so who needs to hear that today? Is it you? Is it me? Who really needs to hear that today? So Paul says, let me tell you who's right. I told you we're going to get there. Verse 4, here's what he says. He says, I'm going to tell you who's right. They're arguing. Now remember, everybody following me? You tracking with me? It's some people say you can eat the steak. Some people say, no, don't cut into it. And so here's what Paul says. He says, there is a side that is right. And it's the side that eats the steak. Come on, church. Not, we're non-denominational. I thought, I thought y'all would say amen. Baby, eat the steak. <laughs> I was doing a wedding last night up at the Reed House. And someone asked where I pastor. They were asking another friend. And they goes, oh, he pastors at Fondren Public. <laughs> I'm like, no, we, sometimes we go there after church meetings, but... No, it's Fondren Church, not Fondren Public. Anyway, um, you can eat the steak. Maybe you can drink. Maybe. We'll get there. About eating food sacrificed to idols. Then we know, there's that word again. Everybody knows something, but we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there is no God but one. It reminds me of Acts 17 when Paul went through Athens 45 miles from Corinth, he walks through and he saw their, all their inscriptions, the temples to these, what, unknown gods. And what it says this, it says he was distressed, which is, by the way, a proper response for the follower of Jesus in this world. If you're not distressed by things, your eyes aren't open. You're not looking. And when you see people and loved ones following false ideologies and false gods. And I was talking to a young group of people uh, today. They had me over and it was a little Q&A. It was a lot of fun. And they were like, one of them was just flabbergasted in the ideologies that are circulating today that people are buying into and perpetuating. It's like, man, part of my statement was when there's a vacuum, when there's not a God, we'll put a God in there. Like you, everybody's got gods. Like, listen to me, you may not be a Christian. You may be skeptical. Your arms may be folded right now. Listening to half of what I say, everybody in this room has a God. And Paul at Athens was distressed by him. And Paul is saying to them in Corinth, hey, listen, these gods aren't even real. These are just idols. John Calvin, the great reformed theologian, would write um, later. He would say that every human heart is an idol factory. You and I produce idols. We, we constantly, is it money? Is it sex? Is it power? Is it fame? Is it reputation? Uh, are we competitive? You know, we just constantly produce idols in our heart and here's what Paul Paul is dropping the truth and he's saying hey you know this side is right feel free why because food is food and steak is steak and be free in Jesus baby be free in Jesus but stay with me for a second so before I tell you who's right he just did I want to tell you how to be right Make sure you don't tear people down. But he's going to give a little bit of dimension and contour to this. Listen to what he says in verse 7, the first part of it. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some people don't really know. Now listen, he's writing to the church. He's writing to the different households of faith. Remember they had small groups. Uh, Some historians believe that small groups were the primary vehicle of which church was church. 
They were house to house, Acts chapter 5. But they were also temple. They came to the temple and, and they worshiped. And he's writing and he's saying, hey, um, and here's what's interesting about this culture. You know how many of us, especially on Mother's Day, you may feel this, but man, I, I've been a Christian all my life or I came to faith, you know, my parents, I, I was raised in a Christian home. I have godly parents. I mean, that's a lot of people's story. Listen to me, in first century Corinth, no one had that story. Are you with me? Nobody had that story. So you either very Jewish, and so you were back to the Torah and the law of Moses and all these ceremonial rites and rituals, or you were Greek and Roman, and so idols were a big part of your culture. So he's writing to both of those. Anybody in a small group with someone from a different culture, different upbringing? Anybody? It can be such a rich experience. Don't let it divide you. But listen, enter in. Maybe don't talk so much and listen to them. And listen to their story to hear because they've got something different to you. And they didn't grow up like you grew up. And that's a beautiful thing. But no one in first century Corinth said, mama and them brought me to faith. Here, you know, it was, it's all new. This is very, very new. This Jesus movement of love. And so in this, he's writing, he says, but some people don't have this knowledge. So there's Jewish people. And listen, do you think, do you think the Jewish crowd, what, what, let me ask, how do you think they reacted to the stake and the, you know, that, that, would they cut into a steak and like, yeah, yesterday this was offered to Zeus or Aphrodite or Apollos. You think they had problems with that? You think the religious crowd did? Yes. I say, some of you, you're, you're tracking with, yes. They had a problem with this. They're like, oh, because I mean, 10 commandments, do not put any other God before me. So they were careful. Do not touch un, any unclean thing. Remember all the ceremonial rituals and the washings and stuff that the Jewish people did. And Jesus was talking to them in Matthew 15, not about the outward appearance or cleansing but the inward appearance a cleansing of the heart and so the jewish people largely were like man don't do this that uh-uh. and the greeks and the romans and, and and free thinkers and free spirits were like let's do this food is food steak is steak let's dig in and so paul's writing says not everybody has this so listen when you interact with other jesus followers other people in general and other jesus followers particularly um, think about their as, as you think of your own Think about their history, their experience, and their background. Because everybody's history, experience, and background comes into play. And listen, if God's going to grow our church with greater diversity, uh, we need to prepare our hearts for this. Uh, we need to, to be uh, better listeners. And we need to know the importance of our stories to hear people who aren't like us. And this was very important then. And I, I ask you, what about your history and your experience and your background affects your knowledge of faith. The second part of our story is being stuck. It's being stuck. And some people were stuck in the history of who they were. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, 7b, I believe it is. Um, some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat the food, sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. So that's the aforementioned. So there's some people that are weak. Their history, their experience, their background makes them more susceptible. There's so many examples of this. Now, we don't fight over, the church isn't divided over food sacrifice to idols. That's, it's just, we're just living differently. But we do argue over things, don't we? And we do say, you know, a Christian can do this and a Christian can't do this. But it's, it's affected by your history, by your experience, and your background. I've told this story to some of you before, but when I was leading a group uh, in Campus Crusade called Priority Associates, it's a, young, it's a ministry uh, to the marketplace. We lived out west, and I remember a small group of guys I led, and there was one guy who came into the group new, and he was a brand new believer. And he cussed like a merchant marine, and we just, we love this guy. But he was telling the story one time, he's like, you know, he was telling the story of earlier, like this was, a, this was um, 
um, an early afternoon group. And he would come and, he, and he, he told our group one time, he goes, man, I just, you know, I smoked some reefer on my way here. And he like, he said, and his testimony was, I really feel convicted doing that. And we were, you know, we were all just offering judgment, like, oh my goodness, like you're smoking and you're telling us about it. Like you're so, unge- this is terrible. And he's just like, yeah, just, but th- his story was, I- I'm thinking about it now. Like I'm starting to feel convicted. And see, we got to learn to live this way. Don't you know that? Like his history, his experience and his background, like that's growth and that progress that for, for him, but for you, that may not be, that's a, you know, there's another level of your life and your maturity. When I joined staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, I was in Fort Collins early one summer and we were running basketball in Moby Gym. And there were these guys there and up and down the court, they were saying some cuss words. And I was like, dang, these guys are in ministry. Well, they were with athletes in action and some of them had just played professional ball and they were new believers and new to the ministry. And it was easy for me to judge them and go, what's up with that? Like, that is so wrong. But we had different history experiences and background, and we all need to be patient with each other. Listen, to some extent, we're all stuck. Listen, your history, your experience, and your background, it's, it, it's a point of, it's a sticking point. And some of us are stuck in our past. I'm watching Susan disciple a young woman, and she struggles with her identity and self-worth. And it's led to disorders and harm. And, and there's a part of us, we look and go, oh, doesn't she know how beautiful? Doesn't she know she's a child of the king? Doesn't she know she's a queen? Doesn't she know she's chosen and redeemed and forgiven? But it's hard for her to get that in. Why? Because of her history, her experience, and her background. Everybody that loved her left her. Everybody who said they loved her was lusting for her. Everyone who said this will be a home and a safe, a safe place and a sanctuary, there were angry altercations and cold shoulders. And that's her history and her experience. So it's hard for her. Not everybody has her knowledge. And you say, well, that's a funny word Paul is using. Well, it's brilliant the way he's using this. But here's, what, here's how um, I could relate it to you in the limited time we have. Uh, you can know something but not feel it. And I know some of you are going to get on me about emphasizing feelings. But, you know, come on. You can know something to be true, but it's not a part of your experience. And we're all like that. And Paul is saying some people, so we got to be careful. So he just said, this side is right. Wouldn't we say, Katie, bar the door, go home, this side is right. And some of us, that's how we solve our family problems. It doesn't work, does it? Because you end up hurting somebody who's on the wrong side of things. Or you puff up the people who have the knowledge. And he's saying, wait a second. We need to be careful for the people who are weak among us. So we're talking about being right. We're talking about being stuck. And finally, we're talking about being family. The love of family ought to be a special kind of love. And throughout these epistles, he starts them with grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. And throughout it, it's littered with brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. He wants to remind us that Jesus taught us to pray. Remember in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, our Father. And every time I hear brother and sisters, it's not lost on me. We are to be reminded that we have a heavenly Father. That we are in Christ and we're part of a family. And so we ought to live like it. So when people are right and wrong in a family, how do you deal with it? When there's disagreement and different backgrounds and experiences and people are different spots on the continuum, how do you deal with family issues? How do you deal with it when you don't agree? Well, here's what I want to say. Family, they look out for one another. And some of you know this. Look, thank God for moms. Can I just say that? Father's Day is just different than Mother's Day. And this is a day of great joy for some of you. And it's a day of deep pain for others of you. But not many of us have stories of mamas who walked out. 
Not many of us have stories of a mom who wasn't faithful and consistent. And some of us have stories of mom who was godly, moms who were godly. Family sticks together. And here's what family does. Related to this passage, I was studying, I wrote this down a couple of nights ago. When family does this. Family looks at another across the table, across the room, or just in our minds in separate rooms, and we think, this isn't your problem, this is our problem. And that's what a family does. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 8. When you think about being right, when you think about being stuck, think about being family. And family says, this isn't just our problem or your problem. This is our problem. Examples are manifold, but here's one. Uh, Let's say you have a sister or daughter and um, she's gluten-free. So what do you do? If a family, if you love her, you want to help her in her pursuit, what do you do? You have a really terrible Thanksgiving dinner. That's what happens, right? You, You make sacrifice for her to some extent. Now you argue over how you do that. But you make sacrifice for her commitment to this way of life. Unfortunately, this story is way too common and tender for some of you. But let's say Johnny is a recovering alcoholic. How does the family love Johnny? They say, Johnny, this isn't your problem. This is our problem. And some in that family, some of the closest say, hey, we're not going to touch alcohol. We're not going to touch alcohol around Johnny, or we're just not going to touch alcohol at all as a commitment to Johnny. Can I just say that's love and that's family? And Paul is saying, don't spike the football in the end zone because you're on the right side of things. That's knowledge that puffs up. You need to consider the weaker brother and sister in Christ because we're family, because we're brothers and sisters. Look what he says in verse 10. We're close to home here. He says, for if someone sees you, The one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? Your life impacts other people's lives. My life impacts other people's lives. Now, there is a phrase in this passage. Keep looking at it. Keep it up there, Zach. There's a phrase in this passage that is particularly bothersome to me, and I kind of hope it is to you. Have you picked it out? It's the third phrase, dining in an idol's temple. Thank you, whoever talked back. I love a talk back culture. Dining in an idol's temple, like that, that ought to be bothersome. It's one thing, listen to me, I'm gonna sound like the moral preacher you may not want, but the, it's one thing to eat steak at a friend's house and go, food is food, praise God, we are free to do this. But it's another to be dining in an idol's temple. And can I just say to you, especially if you're a leader or desiring leadership in the church, this church, any church. I just want to say to you, growing Christian, don't be that person. Don't be the person pulling others into the party scene. Don't be that person. Dudes, don't be the guy pressuring her to do something or send something. Don't be that guy. And there is, a, there is a environment we need to stay away from. There are things that are just straight up wrong and we need to be careful not to enter in. And Paul takes the time to say, hey, your dot, look, look, that's a problem. And we in love need to be able to say, hey, look, look where you're going, look what you're doing. That's a problem and that's not fitting. You're called, can I say this believer? You're called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And I know we can argue what that means. And I know that I incur stricter judgment as a pastor. But I don't know that you need to live your life any different than mine. We need to be careful where we go and what we do. And we need to make sure we're not pressuring or pulling other people into the... Now, we don't 
go into idols. You know, we don't dine in an idol's temple, but we go places we shouldn't. And listen, you're not only causing problems for your life, you're causing your brother and sisters to sin. And let me add a layer because Paul does. It's verse 12. You're sinning against someone else. You're not just sinning against your brother and sister. Listen to me. You're sinning against someone else. Verse 12. Now, when you sin against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, like that's enough, y'all. That's it. Stop. But he's saying you are sinning against Christ. Jesus is ever-present in our world. We pray before service that he's present in our midst. Matthew, the Jewish writer, would say when you do it to the least of these, he gives Jesus' word, when you do it to the least, the naked, the imprisoned, the one who's hurting, the one who's busted and beaten, beaten up. When you do it to them, the poor, when you, when you minister to them, you're ministering to me. And in similar vein, Jesus is present among us. And he's in, uh, he's in, if you're in Christ, you're, we share Jesus. And we're not just sinning against each other. We're sinning against Christ. And so there's this thing here. He's going to get it. We'll get into it in a few weeks in 1 Corinthians 13. We've got a lot of good stuff coming, like the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. We won't be in a hurry when we talk about what love is. But Paul, love builds up. And Paul is saying that love looks after those who are weak. So it's not just about being right. It's about being the right type of person in being right. Truth does matter. And we need to be careful. But we need to look out for each other. 1 Corinthians 13, not trying to steal my th- our, our thunder in a few weeks, but it says love protects. Y'all know that. Love protects. I remember when our kids were younger, they were little, and my oldest son uh, was, is three years older than my daughter, my, my only daughter, and she, they were at, we were at a playground, and there was this boy who I thought I was going to have to enter in and mete out justice. But uh, this boy was pushing on my daughter and just really, uh, you know, just things I don't want to say in church. And I was just bothered from a distance, but, but RJ, the older brother, steps in between this boy and his sister, and he goes, why are you pushing my sister? And I'm like, yeah, he's got this. He's got it. And I love that because love protects. That's another thing that family does. Hey, hey, let's, let's be careful. Let's, let's don't harm one another. Let's look at love protects. And so we need to protect the conscience of each brother and sister. We're growing together. And some people have different history, experience, and background. Some are weaker among us. And so we need to be careful in how we live. And we need to protect those among us. As Lauren and the team come up, I want to close with this. Next chapter is chapter 9. At the end of chapter 9, verse 24 to 27, Paul talks about what you almost think is the Olympic Games, but it was the games that set the stage for the Olympic Games. Greco-Roman history is so fast. I love it. Maybe my favorite part of of history. But um, Paul writes about running. And listen, he'll say in chapter 16, we'll get there, act like men, be strong. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to men and women, he's like, run the race before you. So be competitive and run hard. But I was at a, years and years ago, but I remember to this day, I was at a cross country meet. I, I was running at the time, but attending this event and watching some friends run. And I, these uh, cross country runners, the team that I was cheering for, they finished, uh, they got across the finish line first. But I noticed something really uh, inspiring about these guys as they crossed the finish line. They didn't do what I do when I cross the finish line, which is go to a medic tent and think only of myself and survival. These runners, when they finished, they went back. 
and they found their teammates and they ran alongside them and they helped them finish the race. And I really do think that that is a picture of what Paul is talking about in this eighth chapter. Listen, I can run faster and further than some of you in some areas. In some areas, you could run faster and further than me. But the message of being right and being stuck and being family is that we're looking out for each other. And nobody needs to apologize about running the race that God has set before them. That's a very good thing. Some of us should be faster and further than others. But we all need to look out for each other. And so we go back and we love and we care. And we're, we're concerned about when someone is struggling. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Father, would you help us in being right? Would you prevent us from being an assembly like Acts 19.32 where some shout one thing and another shouts this and they don't even know why they're there. But Lord, remind us why we're here to find faith and express it in love. Love builds up and you say a lot about love. John would later write, the old man would write in his latter days that he who loves is born of God and knows God for God is love. And he flips it if anybody's fuzzy about it. Lord, he says, he who does not love God and others is not known by God or born of God for you are love Paul to Timothy the goal of our instruction is love and Lord I pray for anyone who's tearing down other people tearing down other churches tearing down other friends tearing down other brothers and sisters in Christ tearing down people in their very households that they should be building up Lord, forgive us for our pride. I've got it in my own heart. Forgive us of our pride. And let us be people who build. We build the temple of God. We build our families. We join you in building a church where the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And would you give us a love for our weaker brothers and sisters? Would you give us an appreciation for different stories? Would you let us tell our own? Because all of us to some extent are in places of stuckness where we, we don't have the knowledge. It's not, we don't feel it. It's not a part of our life and we need you. So minister to us in Jesus, we pray. Amen. The altar is open. Would you come and pray today? We'll be down front. We would love to embrace you and pray over anything in your life. Spiritual direction, a decision you need to make prayer, praise, or blessing, whatever it may be. Let's give God these few moments before we go.